Open your Bibles to the book of Exodus, uh, <laughs> Exodus chapter 18. We're studying through the book of Exodus. We're going to look at the whole chapter this morning, chapter 18. The topic, Moses receives administrative advice from his father-in-law Jethro. Title of our message, Father-in-law Knows Best. Let's pray. Father, as always, uh, we come to you with needs. We also have praises, Lord, and gratitude and thankfulness, of course, but uh, Lord, we do have needs, deep needs, important needs. We believe that you can meet them. We pray that your grace would be revealed to us as sufficient today, Lord, in every situation. Pray that we could minister one to another and be ministered to by the word of God. Lord, we're so thankful that the Holy Spirit is our teacher and that you're going to take your word and apply it to our lives in a way that honors and glorifies you. Bless our time together, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. About 40 years ago, I was a new Christian attending a morning men's fellowship at Calvary Chapel of Lake Arrowhead. The question was asked, who is the Christian that has influenced you the most? Take a moment to think about how you would answer that question, especially early in your Christian walk. As we went around the room and guys gave their answers, no one said Billy Graham or Charles Swindoll or A.W. Tozer or C.S. Lewis. No one mentioned any well-known Christian pastor or author. They all mentioned some ordinary believer that God had brought into their life for a time or for a lifetime. That was an example to them and that encouraged them to make progress on the journey homeward to heaven. When it came to me, I said it was Lauren Faulkner. He was my coworker who converted to Jesus and then some months later led me to faith in the Lord and invited me to attend Calvary Chapel. Who is it for you? You probably have a list of several unknown ordinary believers that God has used to be an example to you and to encourage you in your walk. If Moses had been asked that question, he might have answered Jethro. God brought Jethro into Moses' life at certain key moments in order to influence Moses in his work and in his walk. Chapter 18 will be a lot more interesting and engaging if you think about who is influencing you or how you are influencing others. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, you influence others in their worship. And number two, you influence others in their work. First of all, let's look at worship in verses 1 through 12. Any list of the most popular words of the past decade is going to have mentor on it. Rarely does a day go by that I don't hear that. You might be someone's mentor. You might look to someone as a mentor. I discovered something interesting about mentoring. This is uh, in the category of useless facts, uh, but you'll like this. The concept originates in Greek mythology. Odysseus, king of Ithaca, in ancient Greece, he left his wife Penelope, an infant son, Telemachus, to fight with the Greek alliance in the Trojan War. He entrusted guardianship of his son and his royal household to an old friend whose name was Mentor. During Odysseus's long absence, Mentor became Telemachus's mentor, if that makes sense to you. So that's the uh, pagan mythological orientation of the word mentor. Now, it's popular. Why do I bring that up? Because if you consult the internet, it's popular to see Jethro and Moses as a biblical example of mentoring. 
let's not call Jethro Moses' mentor. It would be forcing a context on the text that is sort of foreign to it. These verses are not here to teach us principles of modern mentoring. And it's just a good example of how we need to be careful. Something that's popular today, mentoring, for good or bad, I mean, I'm not against it, I'm not for it or against it, uh, it, just, it just exists. It, it, it wasn't really a thing between Jethro and Moses, and so you can't force that lens on and say, oh, here's the biblical example of mentoring. Uh, that's, that's not what we want to do to study the Bible. Moses wasn't Jethro's disciple either, but he was more than just his father-in-law. It's best to see him as being brought by God into Moses' life at certain key moments in order to influence him. Now, we've met Jethro before. When Moses fled for his life from Egypt, he encountered the daughters of Jethro at a well. After defending them against some surly shepherds, he was invited to stay with Jethro and his family. Moses married Jethro's oldest daughter, Zipporah. He became a shepherd in the household of Jethro for 40 years before he spoke with God at the burning bush and received his assignment uh, to deliver Israel. And so, verse 1, And Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. This will make no sense to you if you haven't seen Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. There's a line of dialogue where Peter Quill's father tells him that even way out on the edge of the galaxy, they've heard of the man who could hold an infinity stone in his hand without dying. With the rod of God in his hand, Moses had decimated the empire of Egypt. Millions of Israelites were on their way to the land promised them through Abraham several centuries earlier. However news traveled, this was the lead story for months and months and months. What's your lead story? For example, tomorrow folks ask you how you're doing and what you did over the weekend. Will you lead by talking about maybe going to church and summarize what you experienced at church or learned? Make that your lead story. On Facebook and other social media sites, people like to announce in a relationship. You find out so much about people on social media now. And, and all of a sudden, it's like, did you know that so-and-so was in a relationship with so-and-so? I do now because it's, it's all over. Make sure people know by reading your social media that you're in a relationship with Jesus Christ, an eternal love relationship. And so verse 2, then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back, with her two sons, of whom the name of one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. And the name of the other was Eleazar, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Now, we don't know exactly why or when Zipporah and the boys were sent back to live with Jethro. There's no use speculating that it shows marital discord or some other motive. It makes more sense to me that Moses and Zipporah would want to protect their family from what was sure to be a fight in Egypt against Pharaoh. I think everybody knew that Moses going down into Egypt wasn't going to go smoothly. In the movies, the bad guys always threaten and kidnap the family of the hero. You and I know that's going to happen. Why the hero doesn't protect his family from the very beginning, I have no idea. But they always end up kidnapped, and it makes for great drama. But uh, I just think they sent, he sent his wife and kids home so as not to give Pharaoh any opportunity like that. Now, the names of the two sons expressed, respectively, the despondency natural to an exile 
and the gratitude of one who has just learned that by God's goodness, the term of his exile was over. And so they, they were named after uh, these big events in Moses' life. The naming of these boys reminds me of Mr. and Mrs. Brown's two sons. One was named Mind Your Own Business, and the other was named Trouble. One day, the two boys decided to play hide and seek. Trouble hid while Mind Your Own Business counted to 100. Mind Your Own Business began looking for his brother behind garbage cans and bushes, started looking in and under cars until a policeman approached him and asked, what are you doing? Playing a game, the boy replied. What's your name? The officer questioned. Mind your own business. Furious, the policeman inquired, are you looking for trouble? The boy said, why, yes, I am. (laughs) It's really rough when first service laughs harder. (laughs) I don't know where I am. I'm totally disoriented now. Verse 5, and Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. Now he had said to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. By the way, two of our ushers are named Trouble and Mind Your Own Business this morning. If you saw that, now you know why. The reference to the mountain of God has some commentators suggesting this story is not in chronological order because Moses had not yet come to Mount Sinai. That may be true, or it may be that the wilderness area of Rephidim was associated with Mount Sinai in a way that folks called the entire area by that name. We're we're just not sure. Jethro sent a message ahead to alert Moses he was coming. Apparently, like Jerry Seinfeld, he knew that Moses didn't like pop-ins, and so he just Gave him plenty of time to know he was coming. Verse 7, so Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down, kissed him, and they asked each other about their well-being, and they went into the tent. This is a standard meet and greet. Every culture has its own, along with personal customs that develop among family and friends. Our culture is going through a a fist bump phase. Have you noticed that? People fist bump. They believe it uh, originated with uh, boxers who would, you know, touch gloves at the beginning of their uh, fight, but they're not really sure. Uh, For fun, check out the Wikipedia article on the fist bump. There's a lot of history to it. One interesting fact for those of us who fist bump, fist bumping behavior has been observed in chimpanzees. (laughs) Not sure what that means, but uh, we're in good company. Verse 8. And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them on the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. Assuming Moses was a decent storyteller, Jethro must have been captivated, hanging on every word. It was an eyewitness, behind-the-scenes commentary regarding one of history's greatest events. Notice Moses kept the emphasis on God. He spoke of all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and how the Lord had delivered them. When you tell your stories, bring the Lord into them. Then Jethro rejoiced for all the good which the Lord had done for Israel, whom he had delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians. Of course he did. The story was just too wonderful not to rejoice. When we ask someone, what's going on or how are you doing, chances are their answer won't be quite as exciting as Moses' retelling of the Exodus. Nevertheless, we ought to be sensitive to what they are saying. Starbucks announced it would be closing shop on May 29th to provide its 175,000 employees with sensitivity training. The article I read was critical of that, cleverly titled, Let uh, Let Me Venti About Racial Sensitivity Training at Starbucks. 
Some Christians do lack sensitivity. I'm not saying I'm one of them, but some Christians do. One example, someone tells you what's happening in their life, and you answer it by telling them what's happening in your life. Uh, Maybe not the best listening technique. Another example, you give quick, shallow answers to someone who seems to be struggling uh, with something very serious. We should rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, entering into their joy or grief as it is appropriate. That's a good 10-second sensitivity training right there. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. You all graduated with honors. <laughs> tell people, see, that'd be a good thing. You could tell people that your church is way ahead of the curve, that you had sensitivity training on Sunday. And then you can tell them what it is, and then you can go from there. And uh, maybe they'll be more interested, uh, maybe not. Verse 10, and Jethro said, blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods, for in this very thing in which they behave proudly, he was above them. Jethro says the Lord is greater than all the gods. It causes commentators to assume he was a pagan idolater until this very moment. They see this as some sort of conversion to Yahweh as the one true God. That doesn't make sense, though, in terms of the entire context. Jethro is going to take the lead in the worship of God, not something you'd expect of a person who just got saved, especially not in the presence of Moses and, as we'll see, Aaron. And so let's read verse 12. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and other sacrifices to offer God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Jethro wasn't sacrificing for himself. He was acting the way a priest acts. He was acting as a kind of mediator between Moses, Aaron, and the elders with God. In fact, he took a higher place than Aaron, who was to be Israel's high priest. And in another fact, in the first verse of this chapter, he's identified as the priest of Midian. It seems that Jethro already knew the God of Israel. One scholar wrote, if we assume that these Midianites are descendants of Midian, son of Abraham by Keturah, our wonder is lessened that among this Arabian people we should find the knowledge and worship of Yahweh had been preserved, as seen in this narrative. Thus, this episode may be added to other incidental proofs of the continuance of pure religion among Gentile nations. In other words, while God was working to establish Israel as the nation through which the world's Savior would be born, he was simultaneously working all over the world with the Gentiles who had been scattered at the Tower of Babel. The nations had knowledge of God preserved and passed down. It's too easy for us to think that since we're focusing on Israel, that those are the only believers on the earth and that God has abandoned others in other nations. That's contrary to what Scripture teaches. Not only did they have these traditions passed down, they also had the witness of the gospel in the stars that the ancients called the Maseroth. We've talked about this before. The Bible says uh, creation declares the glory of God. And uh, we believe that is more than just the fact that there is, it's obvious that the, the universe was created, but that within creation, there is a declaration of the gospel. And uh, though it sounds like astrology today, and when you mention it, people think you're some kind of heretic, ancient peoples understood that the gospel was revealed to them 
in the stars. Was it a perfect revelation? No, but it was God revealing himself. Bottom line, there were lots of saved Gentiles before Israel was established as a nation. We too often discount God working in these ways, even though we do know he has put eternity in all hearts that we might seek him. He has put eternity in our hearts, we read in Ecclesiastes. In Acts 17, one of my favorite scriptures, when Paul is talking to the uh, smart guys there uh, on uh, Mars Hill, he says, God scattered men all over the world. Why? To not reveal himself? No, so that they would seek him and grope after him and find him. And so God is on top of getting the gospel to other unreached people groups. And this is an example of it. Uh, Jethro was a believer in the one true God. Now, what about his statement then that the Lord is greater than all the gods? Well, if you consult a Strong's Concordance, you'll see that the word for Lord is Yahweh, and the word for gods is a form of the word Elohim. What Jethro was saying was that Yahweh is supreme among the Elohim. Now, that makes no sense to us because we've been taught that Elohim is a name for God. It turns out it's not. It's a description that fits God, but it also fits other supernatural beings. Now, you know that I'm no scholar, and I don't even stay at the Holiday Inn. And so uh, I have to consult smart people. Dr. Michael Heiser, who is a scholar and a believer, he's a scholar in residence at Logos Bible Software. Uh, probably many of you use Logos. Uh, it's, I think, the world's top-selling Bible software. Smart guy, good guy. He explains the word Elohim like this. Several different entities are referred to as Elohim in the Old Testament. Considering this variety provides insight as to how the term should be understood. The Hebrew text of the Old Testament refers to the following as Elohim. Yahweh, the God of Israel, over a thousand times. The members of Yahweh's heavenly council in Psalm 82. The gods of foreign nations, 1 Kings 11. Demons in Deuteronomy 32. The spirits of the human dead in 1 Samuel 28. And angels in Genesis 35. This variety demonstrates that the word should not be identified with one particular set of attributes. Elohim is not a synonym or a name for God. All beings called Elohim in the Bible share a certain characteristic. They all inhabit the non-human realm. In other words, they are supernatural beings. By nature, Elohim are not part of the world of humankind, the world of ordinary embodiment. Elohim as a term indicates residence, not attributes. It identifies the domain of the entity it describes. And then Dr. Heiser concludes by saying, Yahweh is an Elohim, but no other Elohim is Yahweh. This is what an Orthodox Israelite believed about Yahweh. He was not one among equals. He was unique, utterly and eternally unique. There is none like him. And isn't that exactly what Jethro says? He says, God, Yahweh, is unique and great among the supernatural beings. And of course, that's an orthodox statement. Uh, and so very consistent with what the Old Testament actually teaches. God, uh, Yahweh is the creator, the almighty God. He's omnipotent, he's omnipresent, he's omniscient, he's omnibenevolent. He is one God existing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, absolutely unique among supernatural beings. Jethro was not a recent convert. One commentator said, 
Every act of Jethro indicates he was already a true believer in God. Now, as Abraham's descendant, he was surely taught from childhood what and how to sacrifice. He reminds us of another Old Testament priest, mysterious Melchizedek, who comes out of nowhere to bless Abraham as a priest of God prior to the establishing of the nation of Israel and its priesthood. And so there were other priests and priesthoods that predate the Levitical priesthood that Moses would establish as God was working in different parts of the world. And so now that we're clear on Jethro's status, we can make application of his actions. He acted as a priest to encourage worship. You and I are called priests in the New Testament. In the Revelation, Apostle John says Jesus has, quote, made us kings and priests to his God and Father. The Apostle Peter says, and I quote, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. William McDonald comments saying, as holy priests, we offer spiritual sacrifices to God our persons, our possessions, our praise, and our service. As royal priests, we tell forth the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. There are then at least these two aspects to our being priests. First, you don't need anyone else to mediate between you and God. You have direct access through Jesus Christ. There's no such thing as a priesthood that is separate from believers. You're a priest, I'm a priest, we don't need a priest because we have Jesus as our great high priest and we go directly to him. And second, you obviously as a priest constantly represent God to the world. I like number one, having direct immediate access to God's throne of mercy and grace. That's a great thing. I don't always like number two. It can seem restrictive to have to think about how my actions and attitudes affect others for the kingdom of God. But I should like representing God. Don't people need God? Of course they do. In this hopeless world, he's our only hope. If I have to make some lifestyle adjustments so as to better represent him, that's a privilege, not a burden. And so Jethro visited Moses, and the result was a deeper worship of God. That can characterize our encounters with others, both believers and non-believers, as we offer ourselves living sacrifices. Now, our second point, you influence others in their work. D.L. Moody is quoted as saying, it is better to set a hundred men to work than to do the work of a hundred men. Moses found himself doing the work of many more than a hundred men. Jethro gave him some advice about his workload, beginning in verse 13, where it says, and so it was on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. After his morning coffee, of course, Moses would take a seat outside his tent to hear matters among the Israelites. I like to visualize this situation. I wonder how early the line formed. Probably some folks camped out beyond Moses' tent to get a good place in line. I wonder if it was fenced off or, you know, but I mean, think about it. We're gonna talk about this several times, but millions of people would have lots of problems to bring before Moses. And you'd have to get there and wait in line uh, for Moses to see you And so uh, this could be touchy and tricky. From morning until evening made for long days of serving God. I wonder if Moses ever came out and just sighed. Oh, 
whoa, I can't see the end of the line. I mean, I do that when I go into the bank and there's more than 10 people in line because I've noticed there is an algorithm that banks use. The more people, the less tellers. <laughs> I know it's more complicated than that, but the fewer people, the more tellers. Uh, and, and so there, there's some kind of a crazy algorithm. And so, you know, there's 10 people ahead of me. I send pictures that here I am in line. Or Save Mart, this is like Walmart, or, you know, that kind of thing. And, and so lines, does anybody like lines? At least, you know, if you're at Disneyland, you can get to the end of the line and it's worth it. Uh, but, you know, this is just a really bad situation. Verse 14, so when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, he said, what is this thing that you're doing for the people? Why do you do alone sit? Uh, why do you alone sit and all the people stand before you from morning till evening? Moses said to his father-in-law, well, the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a difficulty, they come to me. And I judge between one and another. And I make known the statutes of God and his laws. So Moses thought of his work as falling into two categories. First, he dealt with difficulties. Again, think of the myriad of disputes that could arise among several million people who were tent camping in the wilderness. Isaac is snoring so loud, I can't sleep. Well, your baby is up all night keeping me away. I mean, imagine the, the problems that were there, both silly and serious. And second, Moses taught them about God. And I'm guessing this was his preferred activity. That he would rather just teach and talk about the Lord than settle petty squabbles and disputes. I know I work a lot over the years with police officers as a chaplain. And though police officers are welcome uh, any call and, and deal with it professionally, uh, a lot of the things people call the police for are lame. They're not emergencies whatsoever. And it's a wonder. Uh, if you've lived in Hanford and Lemoore your whole life, um, it's, it's really an amazing thing that you can call and the police will come out to your house for almost anything. When I lived in Southern California in San Bernardino, dispatch would ask if there was gunfire and was anybody bleeding. And then they would prioritize the call and somebody might come out eight hours later to deal with me and my neighbor's dispute because there were so many other things that were pressing. I'm not saying it's a good system. It's just the way things are. And so um, I'm sure Moses much rather would teach. Verse 17, so Moses' father-in-law said to him, the thing that you do is not good. Now I should tell you, commentators are split as to whether or not Jethro's advice was godly or carnal. I think some of them think it was carnal because they've assumed that he was a pagan idolater, which we've seen he isn't. I like to think that his advice is godly. At least it's logical and it makes sense. And it doesn't violate any biblical principle that I can find. And so verse 18, he says, both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out. For this thing is too much for you. You're not able to perform it by yourself. Besides the strain on Moses, think of the frustration of having to wait literally in a line all day. There was no guarantee your case would be heard or that your question would be answered. I doubt you would get the same place in line the next day. That doesn't happen anywhere. If you're in line and something closes, you don't come back the next day and say, I was first in line. Oh, yeah? I am first in line. Well, now we have a dispute that needs to be settled. And do you understand what I mean? So this was really, it's really touchy. People say, hey, go to Moses and let him settle this. And you'd get there and it'd be 3,000 people ahead of you in line. You're 3,001. 
At the end of the dark comedy Beetlejuice, Michael Keaton's character is waiting in line. He is number 9,998,383,750,000. That's his number. It's like his huge, you know, the things you, tickets, you, like at the post office. He's looking at it, and then he looks up at the sign that says, serving number two. <laughs> I'm not saying it was that bad, but it must have felt like that to the average Israelite. I know I've felt that way in line at the bank. Now listen to my voice, he says, I will give you counsel and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people so that you may bring the difficulties to God. And you shall teach them the statutes and the laws and show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. Now Jethro is suggesting a better way of doing the tasks assigned to Moses. He would still be the guide tasked with standing in the gap for the people. He would still bring their difficulties before God. He would still teach them. He just do it more efficiently. And I think there's a hint here. Uh, one of the things I think uh, Jethro hits on and, and is true, if you, Moses, could teach more, there would be fewer disputes, or at least that logically that's the that should happen. The more you are taught the statutes of God, the word of God, the less you need others to uh, decide for you because you, you understand God's will for your life. And so if Moses could be set free to mostly teach, it would reduce this workload tremendously. You know, here at the church, a lot of times we get calls from folks uh, who don't attend the church. Uh, and that's great. We love that. We, we minister to people. And sometimes people want to come in for regular counseling. And my counsel to them is almost always start coming to church. Because what happens uh, when, while we're at church, we're receiving all the information you're going to get in a counseling session. It's not targeted, but I'll tell you what's better about it, the Holy Spirit can target it. And so you might think, well, going to church isn't gonna help me because I need to be told this, uh, but the Holy Spirit has a way of ministering to you. I don't know how many people come up to me, and this, I'm gonna exaggerate a little bit, but it, it, it wouldn't surprise me next week if somebody came up and said, you know, last week when you were teaching in the book of Nehemiah, that really ministered to me. And then my answer is always, praise the Lord. If you think we were in Nehemiah, you've got problems, but at least the Holy Spirit was ministering to you. <laughs> During one of your doodles, you ended up in Nehemiah, and that was your verse of the day, and the Lord said, this is you. So, I mean, I, it sounds funny, but there's a spiritual presence uh, of the Lord when we gather together. And so, discipleship, people say, well, what do you do for discipleship? Mostly, we do church. And we're all discipled together. I get discipled by what the Holy Spirit is saying, and we all get discipled along the same lines. And so, uh, so you know, regardless of all of that, Jethro's saying, teach the word, and a lot of these disputes should dissipate because people will know how to handle them themselves. He says in verse 21, moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. Although there were many problems among the Israelites, there were also godly individuals. And these guys were probably obvious choices. Verse 22, let them judge the people at all times. Then it will be that every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they themselves shall judge. So it will be easier for you, for they will bear the burden with you. This is essentially the establishing of lower and higher courts uh, it's a great idea that we still have today. Lower courts, higher courts, and you move on up the chain. Verse 23, for, uh, if you do this thing and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure and all this people will also go to their place in peace. 
This phrase, and God so commands you, is Jethro's way of telling Moses, you better talk to the Lord about this. Jethro saying, I think this makes sense. Just, you know, it's a logical thing and it just makes sense efficiently uh, from a workload standpoint, but you better take it before the Lord and make sure he approves it. It's full of wisdom, it doesn't contradict anything, but it still needs to be approved by God through prayer. The church, we're told, is more of an organism than an organization. That being said, there's nothing wrong with being organized. While we must always be careful not to mimic the world and its methods, some things just make sense, especially when they make things easier for the people of God. And so we need to constantly be looking at how to do ministry uh, in a more efficient manner. Uh, And that doesn't mean borrowing things from the world and forcing the church into it. It just means that there's nothing wrong with being organized. Some people just think, spontaneity is more spiritual. And I'm sorry, I just, I just don't agree with that and I don't see it in the word of God. God may be spontaneous in a romantic sense in his relationship with you, but he was pretty um, organized when he created the world in six days. And, and everything else that he's done shows a tremendous degree of planning and organization. And so verse 24, Moses heeded the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said. If Moses heeded, then he certainly did take this plan before God, and it seems that God green-lighted the plan. And so while I guess it's possible that this was a terrible idea because it didn't come directly from the Lord, uh, like some people teach, it seems to me that this is all good and godly. It's from a godly man, and it's filtered through God, uh, and Moses implements it for the good of the people. And Moses chose able men out of all Israel, made them heads over the people, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. So they judged the people at all times, the hard cases they brought to Moses, but they judged every small case themselves. So why don't we do this? Because we're not millions of Israelites wandering in the wilderness. And God didn't say to do this. Uh, Jethro did, and it was okay with God, and there's a big difference. Uh, If... If Moses had consulted the Lord and the Lord said, here's how I want you to lead these people, divide them into groups of 10, 100, you know, that kind of thing, then we'd still be doing this today. Uh, But we have our own uh, approach to the Lord and and he can green light plans that we made. And that's why there's lots of different churches doing things lots of different ways. As long as you're orthodox in your uh, confession of faith and your beliefs, Uh, you can do church a lot of different ways, and that is a blessing, believe me. Moses would like the Supreme Court, but most cases were settled in the lower courts without appeal to Moses. Verse 27, then Moses let his father-in-law depart. He went his way to his own land. This is our farewell to Jethro as far as the book of Exodus is concerned. He will appear later in the book of Numbers as a sort of guide to Moses uh, through the wilderness. That's in Numbers chapter 10. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul gave similar counsel to young Pastor Timothy. He said, the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so share the workload. The Word of God suggests the work for God. We should constantly be seeking the Lord for vision and direction from His Word, energized by the Holy Spirit. Those entrusted with leadership ought then to encourage every believer to be a part of the work God is wanting us to do for his glory. Uh, I jotted down a few things thinking about this. Invite folks to church. Encourage believers who attend 
to get more involved. Get more involved yourself. Now, we don't make a big deal here at Calvary Hanford about attendance. I don't know if you realize that we're not taking attendance. The greeters aren't, they don't have a secret co- counter. Our Pastor Gene is here today. Yeah, it, it's, we love you coming to church, but we're, we're not trying to burden you. But I'd encourage you to attend things that you don't normally attend. Sometimes it's great to, to break out. If you've never been or haven't been for a while to Wednesday night, come out on a Wednesday night. I know what you're thinking. If I show up once on Wednesday night, they'll be looking for me every Wednesday night. Christians have this weird idea that it's all or nothing when it comes to, to commitment, you know? And, and I, just come every now and then. Uh, worship with us on a Wednesday night. Come the last Wednesday of the month when we have communion together. It's a blessing. Uh, you know, s- stretch yourself in that way. Uh, it's, it, we encourage you. Uh, after he was used by God to lead me to Jesus, Lauren Faulkner invited us to attend Calvary Chapel of Riverside. It's now Harvest Christian Fellowship, but back then it was called Calvary Chapel. It was an invitation that totally shaped our lives. It most certainly influenced us uh, for the past 40 years. Be an influencer. Better yet, realize that you are an influencer and be the best one that you can be.